Hi everyone, welcome to the Game of Power podcast. Today we have a very special guest, a pioneer in the fashion industry. He is the creator of Human Bee, a fashion production facility, Boaz David. Boaz, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you very much, Max. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So can you kind of introduce yourself and introduce your company a little bit so we can be familiar with what you do? Sure. As you said, my name is Boaz David. I've been in the fashion industry now for almost 30 years, most of it in New York, 26 years in New York. Um, my journey started as a fashion designer, um, and then I worked in the industry, and um, in 2009, I started my current company, which is Human Bee. And basically what we do is uh, we offer services of design, development, and production for fashion brand. Um, in other words, designers come to us with ideas, sometimes with just a general concept, you know, some glimpse of ideas that they have in mind, and we help them, first of all, finalize the ideas, and then uh, through a, a method of really tying the product to their business, because we truly believe that if it's a business and needs to be profitable, then there's other you know, key parts in the decision-making when it comes to creating a product that has to go back to the business itself so the business can be profitable and growth. Um, we help them finalize this idea. And then basically what we do is we manage the whole product from concept to finished product for their brands. So we develop the products for them. We produce the product for them. We work with um, professionals in the industry domestically in New York and the U.S. Then we also have uh, factories that we produce with outside of New York in different parts of the country. Um, yeah, our goal is really, you know, come from the perspective of, we can talk a little bit more about my journey later, but basically what happened is before I started this company, I just realized that there was a gap there between young designers and the manufacturing aspect um, and that gap created a lot of issue for both parties. Designers weren't happy with what they got. Factories got frustrated with designers, and that's sort of where we came in to close that gap. Incredible, incredible. It really sounds like an all-in-one place to get your brand and get your ideas executed, which I feel like a lot of people need, especially when entering the industry. Um, I want to talk more about the idea and business concept a little later, but when brands come to you to develop their collection, can you kind of bring me into that process? What are the stages? What do they come to you with? And what can you do for them? Sure. So what they come to us with, um, it really depends. Some comes with uh, just an idea, not even a drawing, just something they had in mind. It could be sitting in their head for a long time. It could be something that just they just kind of had the vision for it, you know, one of their last dreams last week. Um, and then our job is really to help them first um, understand first if this could turn into a business, if the product can be profitable, and if so, how can that be done? And what I mean by that is product can be done in many different ways. 
you know, if I take that the sweater that I'm wearing, it could be done in different price points, different countries with different fabrications, different finishings. Um, so for us to just take that and run with it the way we think about it might or might not fit to where they want to go with their business or what they're trying to do. So really the first stage is to kind of get, for us, to get clarity from them as to where they want to position themselves in the, in the, in the market, uh, how they see their business, their vision for their business, what they're good at, what they want to show in the market, where, how they want to stand out in the market. And I will say many times, the stages that they come to us, these things are not clear to them. You know, and they haven't really thought about these parts. Most times they just have an idea and they want to see that becomes a product. But um, like I said earlier, for us, when we think about taking a concept and making it into a product, it is important that it's going to be tied back to the business. So if need to, we'll work with them on getting the clarity of, of these things. I love that. You know, I've been, I ran a workshop recently on Saturday about the difference between an artist and an entrepreneur. And I talked about how an artist normally creates art because they love to create. And that's completely fine. And one thing that you're talking about is of how that relates to the business and how to, you know, position yourselves in the market. And so I feel like that is a concept that a lot of designers can get a lot of clarity from you on. Can you kind of tell me about how, you know, price point, how certain, you know, whether your target audience has money, what age they are, demographics, um, how that plays into the fashion design process and how you should be uh, thinking about your ideas and your strategy around your brand. Absolutely. It's my favorite subject to speak about. So first of all, what you mentioned, the difference between an artist and entrepreneur, it's right on point. That's exactly the difference between the two. And I will admit, you know, I had my own fashion brand at some point before I started Human B. And my dream since I was a teenager, teenager was to have my own fashion brand. So a lot of what I'm implementing now is unfortunately or fortunately is mistakes that I made. Because I came into starting my own brand with the thought of an artist. I want to show what I'm good at. I'm creative. I can do this product. And then I realized that this cannot turn into a business. I made a million mistakes. It cost me a lot of money. I spent a lot of time. So that's really where I'm, that was the switch for me in my head to understand that basically what you mean. There's an artist and there's the business side of it. So um, when you try to think about the business, for me, now working for, what is it, over 13 years with startups, hundreds of startups, Seeing some that fail, some that made it, I can tell you this, the importance of understanding where do you want to position yourself in the market is huge. And that goes to the price point. Okay? Because again, I'm going to take it back to the product. We can make, you can make a product certain different levels. Okay? So if I'm competing with, uh, and I'll just give some extreme examples. If I'm competing with fast fashion, then, you know, fabrics, quality are going to be all low. I'm committed to big quantities. I need to produce overseas. It's one type of business. 
and I have to think about this before going into it, okay? But if I'm competing, I'm just going to take the extreme other side of if I'm competing with luxury brands, the price point is higher, the quality is super important, the fabrication, the finishing, where it's made, all of that, the, the, the brand itself has a different value. The label has a different value. So these are diff the marketing between the two is very different. So, and of course the target customer is also different, right? So when I look at this, for example, these two, and there's other positions in the market in between, these things will help me then understand one, who is my target customer? And I encourage every one of our customers that we work with to dive into that as deep as they can. And when I talk about target customer, it's not just the demographic parts of it, meaning how old they are, where they live, how much money they make. That's one part and it's important. But then there's the other part and it's the psychographic. And that tells us about what they value when they buy a product. How do they think about their buying process when they buy a product? Do they care for quality? Do they care for price? Do they care for label? Do they care for many of these things? And when you as a designer put yourself in their shoes and start to think from their perspective, then you're able to translate that into the design process and create a product that fits that. When you have that. that, you know, when you have that, when you tie that, you know what product to offer them. You know how to speak with them. Your marketing is aligned with it. Your supply chain is then related to it. So everything starts to come into place when you do that. I got two things I want to add to that. One thing that's sure. easy is to ask, you know, what is your target? Who is your target customer? Another thing that can help you get there is who is not your target customer. So by finding, by thinking about who you don't want to sell to, you can start thinking about who you do want to sell to. I think the other thing is desire. You talked about the psychographic uh, element to that. And so for designers, there's four main desires that people have. There's wealth, there's health, there's relationships, and there's happiness. And so for whenever you're thinking about how people think, you have to think about who that other person and what they decide. And if you can fulfill that desire and market towards that desire, like you explained, it can set you apart from a lot of other people. Big time. Really, I'm 100% behind these two points. And, you know, part of it is also to understand the market you're going into. So once you decide on, okay, I want to go and, and position my brand in this price point, then the next step is you really want to kind of understand the map of that market. Who are the bigger, the biggest competitors there? What are they doing? What they're not doing? What can you as a brand and the designer can bring into this so you can stand out? Because if you're just creating a product and just going to a saturated market already, again, you're going to find yourself struggling to find a way in and build the audience. So once you know, okay, this is a market that makes sense to me. This is what I know I can do well. I see what everybody else is doing and I think that I can do it this way or that way. A little bit different this way, creating, coming up with something that's going to give that customer 
who's by the way already used to buy from these existing brands because they build the trust with him already or her you know that customer know these brands how do you get them to you know look to the side for a second look at your brand and say oh this designer or this brand is offering something different than them i'm going to give it a chance that's really what you want to get to and to to add on to your point like for designers you don't want to be a commodity that competes with everybody right that's how you get lost in a big ocean you want to decommoditize your business jump into a smaller pond so that you can kind of become the king of that pond and so that's kind of what you just explained and i love that concept so now that you have your brand identity taken care of you have your business strategy you know kind of what you want to do what is how do you get your clothes made what is, what's the development process that you have to start thinking about from once you have the idea in your head maybe even a couple of drawings what's next so i will add just one other thing by the way that is a great point and i will say that one of the mistakes that a lot of young designers do is that they want to jump into a huge pond from the beginning and you know as a startup you have to stay lean and the most important thing is for you to build that first community after after you build that first community you have audience that's buying you know what they're getting then it's going to be a lot easier to build so that is a, that is a great point um to answer your question before i at least what i encourage designers again from the perspective that everything has to be lean and their resources are are limited what i encourage them them to do is to uh work on a financial plan and it doesn't have to be something extremely deep but something on a high level that will give you an understanding of what this thing might cost you even if it just to launch because the other part that comes into it designers might come into that development and production um aspect not having that in mind and i've seen it many times somewhere halfway through or after the first season they run out of runway they run out of money they didn't budget themselves right they went a little bit more here a little bit more there they're not prepared for it and the sad part about it is that they put all this time and money into it and now they're stuck yeah so that makes a lot of sense yeah so so that would be another part that i would encourage to do and then once you have that in place you can start to think about your uh your product and you know one of the thing one of the things that i think is today different than how for example was 15 or 20 years ago is distribution changed you know 20 years ago if you started a brand the number one distribution uh avenue that you had is selling wholesale to retailers you make samples you go to a show or go to stores they'll buy your product and they'll sell it for you things have changed now designers have the ability to get directly in contact with their customers sell direct to customer um and that makes things a little different in the sense that you can think about your product from that perspective what i mean by that is that will decide whether you want to follow season or not 
you know, a lot of brands now, not necessarily following seasons. They might have products that are evergreen. You can wear them pretty much any season. Um, it also impacts how many styles you want to offer. So when I had my line, again, the first, the only really major distribution avenue was wholesale. Back then, I needed to create a line of 20, 30 different styles just to show, okay? Investment in time and money is enormous. Today is different. You know, if you're starting and you want to start lean, you can start D2C only. And for that, you don't necessarily need a huge line. Yeah. You can create a line of maybe five, six different products that are going to represent what you're doing better than anyone else and go with that to market. And so thinking about that, knowing what these products are going to be can help you then understand the development and the production of that. Okay. So another thing you want to think of is, you know, when you try to think of a formula for brands to succeed financially, um, one of the biggest issues that always been in the fashion industry is the, the seasons. Okay. Every few months, a brand needs to needed at least to come up with a new line, all different styles, a lot of them, many of them, I don't know how many of your designers are new to this, but the reality is many of these brands, they'll develop 20, 30 styles, but they'll go into production with maybe 10 of them. So not every style that you develop and design will end up being in the store. So just think about it for a second, the time and the money and the resources that you're putting on into it. And then every season and every season, you know, the state yeah. of cycle, that sucks a lot of your resources. So again, when you think about your line, you really want to think about items that as far as you can tell until the, the, the you know, the market tells you differently, at least some of them can be product that you can say, you know what, I think these are products that I can run season after season for at least few seasons. So I don't have to reinvest in development. I don't have to reinvest in, in designing this. Uh, same thing goes to materials. Look for fabrications and materials that you can use more than one season. So now when you think about it this way, that comes the next part of, okay, where is it going to be based on all the things that we talked about? Price point, your distribution, your business strategy, where it would make sense for me as a brand to produce my product. Can I produce it locally, wherever I am? Do I need to go overseas to do that? And, you know, there's a lot of things to, to uh, think about it when it comes to it. There's the price point, there's the, the, the quality, you know, uh, locally, many times it's hard to get some types of products made because they're, this type of product is made in other countries normally. So there are all these challenges, but that's really when you start to think about your product and how it's going to be developed and how it's going to be manufactured. And then comes the part of, okay, let's go source factories, vet them, test them, and find who is the one that we can partner with. 
I love a lot of the different things that you just said. I want to pick apart a few of them. One thing that was interesting was you talking about not reinventing the development process for each season. And that's a strategy that I'm doing with my dress shirt brand. I want to have four dress shirts that go, that are in stock at all times. You can get Nike dry fit shirts at all times, no matter what it is, no matter how hot or cold it is. And that is like one of the core elements that I'm using with my dress shirt brand. And then I had on to, you know, do brand collabs, have other artists design on them, do other, you can build off of that. But my core is going to be, I'm going to have a perfect dress shirt for you each and every day of the entire year that you could always funnel in. And that helps me because I don't have to, once I get the development done and the pattern done, then I can just keep ordering more. And now I just have to worry about, being financially responsible and an operator in order to scale that. So I love that you said that because that makes a lot of sense and it gives us something to think about whenever we approach our product strategy. Absolutely. And I'll add a couple of other things that sometimes, you know, designers don't think about it. And listen, I, like I said, I've been a designer and I understand that, especially the early stages, there is this need inside of us as creative people to do like, you know, you, you come into this industry or any, or any creative industry, you feel like you want to be creative and create new things. So sometimes the thought of like, what, I'm going to end up doing the same things over and over again is, is, is not necessarily something that is hard to accept. But I want to make sure that whoever is listening understand that there has to be a balance. It doesn't mean that, you know, the shirts that you're going to make now is what you'll ever, you know, this is what you'll ever do. But this is how it's going to build your business. And as you said, you'll add and change. And, you know, you, you'll, you'll tweak along the way to make it new every time. But the base is there. Now, think about it from the customer perspective as well. If a customer now comes, then I'll take your shirt line as an example and buy one of your shirts. They love it. They wear it all the time. It fits them right. The price is right. And then they come next season. And you don't have that shirt. And they're like, hey, dude, I love the shirt. Why aren't you making more of it? And they don't like what you do next. You lost them. As opposed to they're coming the next season and you have that. And now they're ready to buy three of this. And maybe then you'll see, oh, he's doing this as well. I'll try this. Now you build trust with them. Now they become your customer. Now they want to buy from you and you are going to be first in line when they're looking for shirt next time. So there's that perspective that, that designers sometimes don't have that view to understand, but that's really how you build a business. And I promise you, if you look into any big brand, go back to their early stages, you will see that they build their business on few styles that were core styles that worked really well, that maybe they're even doing it now 20, 30, 40 years later, even though their brand now have hundreds of other styles. So, you know, that, that's something that, uh, that's really where the entrepreneur and the artist merge. I love that. And I, and I think just to clarify your point even more, it's easy to see a brand like North Face now and be like, oh, you know, they have all of these different products, but like they really did build their business off of those jackets. And so you do have to, it's hard looking at it from the end point because you don't see 
the signature product that they had built to get to that larger business and build the complementary products around. But if you do think about each business and think about, well, what is the core product that they sell better than everybody else in the market, then you often find your point. So I, I love that. And then when you talk about the financial plan, just like a quick startup cost guide, what are some things that we should be thinking about for the financial plan so that we can kind of make sure that we are on top of all the costs that are going to come into us? Sure. So the, the, the first thing is really to understand the profitability of your product. Okay. And that depends on your uh, distribution options. I'll give an example. If I'm selling a product to wholesale to a retailer, okay, my markups and the price that I'm going to sell that product to the retailer is going to be one. Okay. If I'm selling direct to a customer, if that's my business model, then my markups and prices are going to or could be different than this. How come? If I have this pen now, okay, and that pen costs me one dollar, okay. If I'm selling it to a retailer, I need to sell it at least double the price in order for me to be profitable. So now I'm selling it to the retailer for two dollars. That retailer is going to take these two dollars and going to do either at the very minimal double it or maybe 2.5 of it. So this pen now it's going to cost in the store when the customer goes to buy it, probably about $5. Okay. Now, if I take that same pen, cost me $1 and I don't want to go wholesale. I want to go just direct the customer on my website or any other way that I'm going to sell. I don't need to think about the markups of the retailers. I can take this dollar and say, you know what? I'm going to sell this pen for $3 to the cost to the customer. Okay. So the end retail price is different. Okay. My markups is different. The calculations, the revenues, uh, how much money I'm putting in and how much money I can project to bring in is different. My marketing, when I go to wholesale, as opposed to marketing, when I go direct to customer is different. And this is just like one example of how something simple like that needs to be thought of at a very early stage. That's why a price point is, is, is important because if I know to begin with that my, I want to sell this pen for $5, I need to work it backwards and understand how much this is supposed to cost me based on my business, my distribution and all of that, then take that, create a budget as to how many pens do I want to produce? I want to produce a hundred pens. Uh, sorry. Yes. A hundred pen. Then, okay. hundred times one. I need a hundred dollars for it. Yeah. I want to make it option. Same thing. These are just really high level things that will help you understand your investment. Now there's more that goes into it, but high level, this is the thing. And then those marketing, how much do I want to spend on marketing? Um, what's my marketing strategy? Development has a cost to it as well, which again, depends on how many styles I want to develop. My development costs will, will go back to this, you know, even if I want to create 20 different styles, maybe I don't have the budget for it. Maybe I'll go yeah. 
you know, develop only four or five. So these are the things that, from what I've seen, many designers in the early stage don't think about. Many of them, unfortunately, many of them, comes it comes to hurt them down the road. Gotcha, gotcha. And so a lot of early brands start by selling like wholesale blanks, right? And do printing on them. Those are like, that's like the, you know, the entry level clothing brand thing. And those brands now want to get more into the cut and sew process. Can you kind of talk to me about the difference between the blanks and the cut and sew process and what the cut and sew process entails? Sure. You know, it's a great point. And there's a huge difference. And there's a big uh, difference between getting blanks, printing on them and selling them as opposed to having, even if it's the same type of shirt or hoodie or whatever it is that you used to buy, but now you want to create it as your own product, cut and sew. Huge difference. The biggest difference is actually in price. When you buy blanks, those companies who are selling you to blanks, they're producing huge amount of quantities. Okay, they have the resources to produce it overseas or wherever it is that they produce in high volume, and they sell a lot of high volume. So they can sell these products to you and any other designers, quite honestly, in a, in a very reasonable price. Okay, if you would go and uh, let's take a T-shirt for example, simple item. Honestly, on, on from a production perspective, it's not a complicated product to produce but it's a product that if you don't have volume there the price can get really high so if i'm now let's say i had a year where i bought blanks and by the way when i buy blanks i can buy just a dozen or i can buy 24 really small quantities sell them get more sell get more my cash flow is not tight here Okay, I don't need to commit to hundreds or thousands of products. I can just build it as I go. It gives me that flexibility. I bought 12 or 24. They didn't sell well. The print wasn't, you know, accepted nice. The colors that I choose, chose wasn't right. Okay, I'll move these pieces. I'll try a different style. When you go into producing styles on your own, cut and sew, the commitment there is completely different. Okay, now... First of all, you need to develop the product. Patterns, samples, go through the fittings of it, really get to a point where it's ready for production. Okay? So that's one part that, again, time and money goes into it. But the other part, if you'll take that same t-shirt, now I'm going to go to any factory, and in order for me to be even somewhere close in price, cost, to what I bought that same item from the of the company who sold it blank to me, I might need to commit to a thousand or two thousand or maybe even more at a time. So that jump, as much as it sometimes can feel okay, naturally, maybe I exhausted the blank space. I'm ready to go into making my own product, but oh god, I had no idea this is what I need to go through. That makes a lot of sense because not only do you have to do the development costs the production costs you're competing with a blank supplier that can make those thousands of units so they can charge smaller prices if you did that yourself you would have to up that quantity to get down your cost 
So that com that makes absolute complete sense. Talk to me about the process of developing the developing the cut and sew uh project before the you give it to the manufacturer. Maybe what a pattern is, what a muslin is, um, and like some fabric expertise as well. I feel like people would really be able to benefit from that. Sure. So you know, um, my background. When I studied fashion design almost 30 years ago, one of the things that the school that I went to uh, was really big on is teaching us pattern making, sewing. So really knowing how to make the product, not just design it, not just draw it, but really what goes into creating that or taking that 2D sketch and turning it into a finished product. So the way that... The, I think about all these things is fit patterns. How is that going to translate for a factory? Um, so when you think about development, there's a couple of things that you, or a couple of options for you to go about. Okay. And they're different. Again, where, where am I going to be producing will have an impact on it. So I'll give you an example. When you, decide to develop and produce your product, or I should say, produce your product domestically. Okay, let's say in New York. You're based in New York. There's factories in New York or in LA even, and you want to produce it here. Um, in most cases, the factories there are not going to do the development for you unless you pay them. Some of them don't even deal with development. They just strictly do production. So... You need to develop the product, and I'll talk about what development means. You need to develop the product, get it ready for production for them to start working and produce the product for you, okay? When I go to, uh, if, if, if I want, I can go to a factory overseas, and let's take a place in India or in China or in any of these places in Asia, even in South America, most of them, if not all, have the capacity to develop the product for you. Mm. Okay? They can, you can send them what we call a tech pack. And a technical package is basically a document that has all the information that is needed for whoever it is that's going to make the first patterns and then samples um, for them to know what they, what they need to do. So it has a sketch on it. It has fabrication ideas. It has measurements, sizes, ideas of how you want things finished. All the information that you would want or think about um, for your product. Then that pattern maker will take that. And that's going to be their instruction, basically, of how they're going to make that pattern. And later on, samples and so on. So <clears throat> with factories overseas, technically... You can create a tech pack, and if you can, then you can find somebody who's technical enough or has the knowledge to create a technical package for you, the tech pack. You send it to the factory. They'll make the sample for you. In many cases, they'll do it for free because the way they operate is we're happy to do the development for you in return for production order. Okay? That makes sense. A lot of brands... A lot of big brands, that's how they operate. So 
the designers, they have a group of technical designers. They'll send it to the factories. The factories will develop the product. They'll work with the factory until they get the production and then they'll place the production order with it. Okay. The challenge that I see with that is that especially in early stages, one factories overseas has, uh, normally higher requirements for, uh, production quantities, what we call MOQs. So minimum, um, minimum order quantities. That's what MOQ stands for. So yes, they can develop it for free, but then you have to commit, let's say to 500 or thousand pieces, and it might not be something that you're comfortable doing at the early stages. That's one challenge. The other challenge is what if you don't like the factory, you tried it one season and it didn't work out for whatever reason, or God forbid, another COVID happened and they closed. And you have to find, for whatever reason, need to find a different factory. What happens now is that you need to take the stack back and send it to another factory and start the development again, mm. okay. which is a challenge on its own. But the bigger challenge, and again, that comes from my mind as someone who understands patterns and know what goes into it. If I have a shirt now that I perfected it with the first factory, my customer loves the fit. But I don't have access to that pattern anymore. I need to go and redevelop it with these new factories that are sourced. And they might or might not get it exactly the same way. Now I have this challenge. Okay. The other way, and that's really how my company works. Um, regardless of where we produce in the world, domestically or overseas, we develop the product here in New York. What that means is when it comes to development, there are certain stages that you'll go through. The first stage is making a pattern. So a pattern maker, take your sketch, the measurements, all the ideas, the design details that you want, fabrics that you source, because it's important for them to know what kind of fabrics you're going to work. If it's, if it has stretch to it, if it's not. If so, to what degree it has stretch, um, the heaviness of it, how it drapes, all of these things, not only the content. Something I want to make sure that a lot of you guys understand is that I can have two fabrics that will have the same content, but they're going to act completely different because they were needed, knitted or woven completely differently. Okay. The weight is different. They're going to drape differently. They're going to act on the body differently. Okay. So for a pattern maker to get their pattern, uh, done, right. That's something they need to understand. So they need a swatch or understanding of, of, of what that fabric looks like. So they'll take the sketch, the swatch and every other information that you will give them as far as the design, and they'll create a 2d pattern. Okay. They're basically, some of them still do it by hand. It's the old school. Some do it on a computer, but the end result is a paper pattern. And a paper pattern sits in 2D. Now, that pattern goes into a sample maker, and that sample maker will take it, lay it on fabric, cut the pieces, and sew them together. Okay? So now we have a sample. Now, at the early stages, 
at that first early stages, quite frankly, when you make the first patent, you don't necessarily need to make the first sample all finished and done with all the details and, and completed. Because what you want to get is just a general idea, like a quick glimpse. Is the fit right? Is the measurement right? Is my design ideas there? You know, just kind of like, hey, can I get a quick look into generally before I go deeper into this and spend more time and money and waste a lot of energy and can I see at high level are the big things are, are nailed here? If they are, then we'll go and make another sample. So what happens in the process is first pattern, like I said, is done by a pattern maker. Then normally the next stage is what you just mentioned, a muslin or we might call it fit sample, which is really not a finished sample in most cases. It just, you put it together and many times you will not even make it in the exact fabric that you will end up making the product in. Although I would recommend that if that fabric that you'll end up using is not too expensive, then go ahead and mix that muslin with it. Um, you'll take that, you'll fit it on a fit model, and I'm going to be really um, strict about that part on a fit model, guys, not on yourself. And I'll tell you why. If you fit things on yourself, first of all, as the designer, you have you don't have a full view of the item because you're going to look at it in a mirror. Most of what you see is the front. In order to see the side and the back and how things work, you're going to have to manipulate more mirrors and figure out a way to see it. And it's never going to be as if you're looking from the outside at an item. Okay? And you as the designer, you want to see 360 of that item. Okay? So you want to see it on someone else. That's one thing. The other part is, sizing and measurement okay fit models i will say they're not cheap i understand that but their value is that their job is to keep their measurements consistent all the time okay i'll give you an example if i now made that first sample and let's say i fit it on a good friend of mine and he or she fits the sizes and measurements that I'm going for. Okay? We fit it on him or her, make the correction. The pattern maker this took that these corrections, applied them to the pattern. We made another sample. And then two or three weeks later, we're coming back and fitting it on my friend again. Now, my friend is not a fit model. So he or she might have gained weight, lost weight. Things happen in their lives where all of a sudden their measurement changed a little bit. Now when putting in the same item on, you know, the corrected item on them. And I'm looking at them thinking, God, I made these changes. How come they don't show here? How come I need to make the same changes again? Not understanding that he or she might have gained a little weight, you know, um, lost a little weight, and that impact my fit. That would not happen with a fit model. He or she will come two weeks later, a month later, two months later. They know that their job is to keep these measurements. So think about it this way. If I have um, something that is consistently the same and I can then always 
fit correct and go back to fit again, then my um, my perspective about my changes and what I did will always be right because I'm always comparing it to that same body. If that body changes, my comment, my my corrections will change, and I can find myself fixing, making a sample, fixing, making the sample again. Time, money, uh, not accurate rabbit hole. Okay, that's scary. Little save you that that issue. So again, this is this is something that I'm. We're very very strict about it. Um. Tying it back to the development process, like I said, we made that first fit sample or or muslin. We fit it on a fit model. The pattern maker, by the way, should be at that fitting because he or she knew or know what they did. And many times, if you're not the pattern maker and technically you're not there yet, you might think that the change that you see needs to be fixed this way when in reality, it's a different way that will affect that. A pattern maker will have that view. So you want the pattern maker in that fitting. You'll take whatever comments from that fitting, corrections that needs to happen. The pattern maker will take that, will make the corrections on the pattern, and then you'll go to the second uh, sample. Now, depends on how far or close the first fit sample was. You can decide... If you want to go and make that second sample still a muslin, a fit sample, not finished completely, or maybe it's good enough to make the full samples from it. Okay. Um, this stage, I will say that, you know, we offer our development services and packages. And our first package is first sample, sorry, first pattern, and then two rounds of samples. And I can tell you this based on the information that we request, based on how we know how to guide the designer and how we know how to guide the pattern maker, in 95%, if not more of the times, we're able to nail the fit and get to production fit and have a pattern that's ready for production within that uh, package. Meaning one first pattern and then two rounds of samples and, and fittings. I have seen so many situations where designers went through like five, six, ten different types of the same situation of fitting samples, fitting samples, fitting samples, and still not happy with where they are. Okay? Um, what I would say is that if you've done two, three samples, let's say, three rounds of patterns and samples and fittings, and you put that third sample on a fit model, and you still feel like, oh my God, I'm so far from where this needs to be, it's time to stop and realize that something here is not working. Maybe what you're trying to do with your style is not doable. Maybe the pattern maker is not really understanding what you're trying to do. Maybe the pattern maker or the sample maker are not really the right person for your product. Whatever that is, maybe the fabrication is not right. Whatever that is, it's time to raise a red flag and look in the process before you keep just going and going and going. So 
I know it's a long answer, but the answer, the question of what development is, the idea is that at the end of this process, I have a pattern, okay, that is ready for production, that I can go into a factory, hand them the, pad the pattern, they can cut the fabric from that and make me the sample that I know I want, and then bulk produce it as well. Okay, perfect. One other, okay, one other thing just to add to this is when you do the development, normally you develop or work on one size only. Once you perfected that size and it's ready for production, then you send it outside to a grading company and they'll grade to the other sizes. So you don't have to work on all the sizes right from the get-go. You know, again, I'm bringing this up because it's another mistake that I've seen a lot. You know, designers will work all the sizes. Now think about that. What if there's fundamental mistake or error or something that needs to be fixed? And now I have to fix all the sizes again, as opposed to if I'm working only on one size, I perfect that size. Once this is done, then I can go and apply everything to uh, the other sizes. That was an incredible explanation of the entire development process. And I think that that can save people time and money. I feel like you pointed us in a great direction. So what are some of those things? What are some mistakes, maybe some tricks to work with pattern makers that can save us all of this extra effort as well? Sure. I mentioned earlier, when you have an understanding of where you want to position yourself in the market from a price point, then it relates to the product. And what that means is, if I know that I need to, for example, and I'm just going to give an example, I want my product to be sold in the stores for $100, okay? And I work backward from there, and I know based on the markups that I need to allow for the stores and the markup that they will do, um, that my cost should be, let's say, around $20, okay? I'll give you a tip. If you sell wholesale, okay, and you know what you want the price in wholesale and in retail in the store to be for your product, a quick formula of what this product should cost you is take that price, divide it in five, that should be the cost. So if I'm retailing, if I want to retail it for $100, quick math, I need this product to cost me $20 in order for me to be profitable and for the stores to be profitable. Because keep in mind, if the stores are not going to be profitable, doesn't matter how great your product is, yeah. they're not going to buy it from you. Okay, so you have to think about that. Um, so now that I know that, and I know that something needs to cost me, and again, let's take that $100, for example, and I know that something needs to cost me $20. When I go to source fabrics, when I think of the finishing and the details that I want in my item, I need to keep that in mind. And I call this design with production in mind because you design the product already to fit into how you're going to produce it and what will go into it. So if I know that something cost, needs to cost me $20, I can tell you this, I can't work with silk fabrics. Because silk fabrics are going to be easily $15, $20 a yard. And if my items take even just one yard, 
I've now exhausted my cost. Mm. So now I know I need to work with fabric that's going to be at this price point, whatever that is. I know that maybe I can't do a lot of details in it because it's going to end up costing me a lot because the factory is going to put a lot of labor into these details. I can't have like 15 different pockets on it, okay? I can't do like hand finishings, you know? And again, I'm giving extreme uh, examples to kind of illustrate the idea. Going back to how I've seen so many designers making mistake in that space is that they will go and develop a product without knowing that, without knowing or understanding that they, well, I should say they want to sell it for $100, but they'll go and design a product that will end up costing them just to make maybe $70 or $80 or $100. And then they'll get the price from the factory and they're going to look at it and see like, how am I going to make money here? This is impossible. Yeah. Think about it this way. They spend time, they spend money, all their energy went into it and now they're stuck. Okay? Very, very, very common mistake. Okay? Um, as far as working with pattern makers or sample makers or really anybody that's helping you develop your product, even if it's someone who's creating the tech pack for you, okay? Or even when you source fabrics, quite frankly, or materials, physical references are going to be key here, okay? Remember how I mentioned that two fabrics can have the same content but still act and feel differently? So if I'm going to go now to source a fabric and I'll go to a fabric mill or agent and I'll say, hey, you know what? I want 100% cotton fabric. Okay. They might show me 50 different versions of that. Okay. Which one is going to fit my needs? I need to sit now and go through all of them. Okay. But think about it this way. If I go now to them and I say, hey, here's a shirt or here's a fabric swatch that I found in the store. Okay. I like the hand. I like the feel. It's 100% cotton. I'm using it to make shirts from, men's shirts from, like as specific as I can about this. I'm looking to be position my brand in this market. So my price point is going to be here. These are the brands that are probably going to be hanging with me. Do you have something that fits this bill? They might come and say, here are four or five uh, fabrics that I think will fit for you. Think how much time you save yourself, how much time you save them. And now you have maybe four options that are all like on point. Okay? I want to jump off your point real quick. Yes. Physical with the physical, um, give me something physical to the pattern makers. That's exactly what I did. And I told like, I told designers like what you can do is you can find something that you like, some form of physical reference, and then maybe cut it out, maybe pin it a little bit. Maybe just, you know, you can tape things together. You can kind of, you can go to the thrift store, find, you know, something and then just cut it up and pin stuff together. And even that would help. So that's exactly what I did. So I just wanted to like second your point in terms of physical copies. Um, one great thing that we got from somebody a long time ago was like people just want to chop wood. And so if you give them 
everything that you that you want and even if it if it's physical that's even better then they can just go and get started and so like i think that that's a huge key that you added big time i can tell you this with pattern makers it's it's crucial because um yes you can give them specs and measurements okay but the reality is a garment has curves into it and has some parts to it that measurements are not going to do justice to it okay because if i'm just following measurements yes measure i can take a garment and measure it and it will fit the measurement but when you put it on a body it still doesn't fit right yeah. like the armhole might not fit right the neck might not fit right there are going to be things that are not proportionally there but if i give that pattern maker to your point an actual item and i say you know what I love how this item fit. As far as I'm concerned, follow the measurements here and follow the, the specs here and follow the fit here. But I want the color to be higher, wider, shorter, whatever that is. I want the sleeve to be shorter. I want to add a pocket. I want to do a slit here. Whatever these changes are, it's going to be so much easier for her or him to get you pattern that is right for you quicker than if they just gonna follow specs on a tech pack, okay? Yeah. So that is, that on its own, and honestly, even for you as a designer, it helps you as well. Because when you see, the reality is, when we design now, how many items are completely, you know, designed from scratch with no history? Nothing, at the end of the day, you know, we take a shirt that we like, we take an item that we like, we give it a new life, we, we repurpose it, we adjust things on it. So there's always something there that, that fits the base idea. Now, the other part is when it comes to specs and measurements and sizes, because that's another challenge with, with, with clothing, right? Um, an easy way for me to get to that the right way is... Again, going back to my market position, okay? If I know that I'm going to be positioning myself in this market and I know the bigger players in that market and I know that my customer right now, and I'll take your shirt line. I know if you know that your customer right now is buying from, I'm just going to give an example, from Brooke Brothers, okay? You know they're buying the shirts from them and they love the fit there. But you know that you can give them a different look, a different feeling, whatever that is. But the fit of Brooks Brothers is right for your customer. It fits their body type. It fits the sizes. I can basically go to a pattern maker and say, you know, I'd like to follow their specs. I, love, I like to follow their grading and their sizes. So, you know, you're, you're working off something that's already exist as opposed to you trying to figure out what the sizes are yeah. and right or not. And, you know, and talking about mistakes, many times the assumptions and then you, when you said about, you know, people just want to chop wood, nothing, um, you know, I have tons of respects to pattern makers and sample makers and anybody who works in that space of samples and production. But one thing I will say is they're not designers. They don't have the capacity to think for you. They don't know 
They're not in your head. They don't know your vision. So if you give them things that are not as clear, for them at least, as opposed to giving them actual physical things, it's going to be a lot easier for them to get into your head to understand a detail that you're trying to make. Otherwise, they'll just stick what you give them and they'll make how they always do it. And that might or might not be right for you. But even more so, if you're trying to do something new, you're not going to get that because they're going to go back into the way they did the pattern for their 100 previous customers that they did patterns for. And they might or might not fit yours. So physical references are key. You have them in your closet, go to stores and pick up swatches, go to uh, fabric stores and pick up swatches, go to stores and look at items, collect this, provide it to whoever it is that work on your product. It will save you tons of money and time. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I want to learn more about how you got into the industry. Is there anything else you wanted to add just to kind of conclude this whole development and even production process just to just so we can move on to a little bit more about you? Um, no, I, I think, you know, the, the one thing I would say is really try to think about um, where you want your business to go. I, I'll say that. Before you go into development and production, yes, think about your business. Think about three things. Think about what you want the purpose of your brand to be, what you're all about. What do you want to stand for? What do you want people to say about your brand when they think about your brand, okay? It's important. It's important for you to have something that is beyond just, oh, I want to offer creative stuff, or I want to be the cheapest in the market, or I want to make money. These are all great things, but they're not going to stand alone, not in today's market. If you want to connect to customers, you really have to find something that they're going to build that emotional connection with you. So if you come and say, hey, you know, I want my brand to stand for sustainability. I want my brand to stand for fit. I want my brand to stand for, you know, something that is going to give customers a way to not worry every day that they get up in the morning and open the closet and, and thinking about what they're wearing. These are the things that are going to be the core um, values of your brand. You'll be able to communicate this to your customer. It's going to help you when you think about product and how you want your business to be. The other part we talked about it is understand where you want to position yourself in the market. Get to know your target customer. Focus on a niche. Don't spread yourself too much. Focus on a niche. Get to know them. Understand what they want and what out of this they can't right now find in the market. That's going to be the key uh, details or process or, or um, item that you can offer them that is always going to give you a chance with them to try out. Once you have that, then sit down and design your product with that in mind and then start the development and production. I promise you, if you go through that, you're first of all going to be on point with your product. Second of all, the whole process is going to be much more fun, less expensive, and a lot less time. And you know, if, if, um, if anybody needs help or a little bit more into that, on our website, 
there's a guide that I can give the information later. You can go and download that guide. It's free ebook that I talk about all these things with, you know, worksheets that you can work and it will really help you with that process and get you to develop in production in a much, much linear and easier way. Sweet. So that was incredible. I think that was just extremely helpful for all of us young designers. Talk to me about you starting out. Like what made you get into fashion in the first place? You talked about being in fashion for 30 years. So why do you love fashion? What does fashion mean to you? You know, um, it's funny because I'll start by saying that if I knew what the industry is like back when I had the dream to be part of the industry, I'm not sure that I would be in the industry. <laughs> all from Quincy, quite frankly. So it all started when I was about 15. I, you know, when I was a teenager, I always loved clothing. I like, I like dressing up. You know, I'll go to buy clothes. You know, my mom would go buy clothes with me. I'll come home and I'll start to fix them and change them and cut them and sew them. She'd get furious with me. We just spent all this money on this clothes. I can't even return them. What are you doing? But I was kind of new. You know, I, I would try them out of the store and think, okay, I know what I need to do. I know what I need to do here. It's, it's good enough for me. I get home and then make it look the way I, I, I wanted it. And that was really how I got into it. You know, I loved that. And then, you know, when I was 15, uh, this girl in my class, what they said, I never thought about career in this. I just, it was fun for me. This girl in, in class said, hey, you know what? You should go and, and study fashion design. I thought to myself, oh, wow, I never thought about that. I didn't even think it's an option. You know, it wasn't really the case. Um, but fast forward, I wanted to go into high school for fashion. My parents did not approve of it for, you know, obvious reasons, thinking, you know, you need to learn a profession that's going to take you and, and help you, you know, make a life for yourself. You know, you're just 15 years old with crazy ideas in your head. No. Um, but what happened in, in high school is that I sort of formed the, uh, the, the idea in my head. So I'm from Israel. And in Israel, once you finish your uh, high school, you have three years mandatory service in the army. So when I was in the high school, I made that decision that once I'm done with my service in the army, I'm going to study fashion design. And that's really what I did. Finished my three years commitment to the service. Um, you know, applied for fashion design school back in Israel. Studied there for four years. Fashion design. One of my best times in my life by far. And I will tell you this, the thing about it was that um, it was purely just creating stuff. You know, I didn't need to think about selling these things. Business part of it wasn't really something I had to think about. It was just like, I can be creative and create all these incredible stuff and, and do whatever I want really. Uh, there was one teacher there who always pushed back on me and said, you know, you're doing things that are going to look great in video, but music videos and in, in, you know, on the runway. But at the end of the day, people are going to hire you to buy your clothes so people can buy your clothes. And if you can't sell them, if they're not wearable, you know, this is not, this is not what we're trying to do here. And I, you know, you're, you're early twenties, you don't think about these things. I just thought, yeah, 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 whatever. Honestly, 
finished uh, fashion school. Literally, the, the, the last day of fashion school, we had a runway show. I was hired the next morning by a company, a dream company for me. A dream come. I could I couldn't imagine anything better than that. Fast forward a month and a half later, I was fired from that company for the same reason that that teacher was keep telling me, you know, if you're not making garments that people are gonna buy, you're not gonna have a value there. And so, I got fired from there. You know, went to like, oh my god, what am I doing? All of these things. But I made a decision that. I want to try and see if I can make it in a bigger fashion uh, environment. So I sort of made a decision that I want to move out of Israel. Originally was to Europe, uh, but, you know, things happen. And I just, friends of mine moved to New York and I just said, you know what, I'll move to New York and see what that is. They didn't know anything about the fashion in New York. And honestly, didn't know much about New York in general. So I moved to New York, um, got a job selling products or selling in the store in New York. And then, you know, sort of built myself from there. Got my first job with a designer. Uh, we just started his brand. One of the best experiences I've ever had in my life. That was really the first time that I was able to see how you merge the artist and the entrepreneur together. Because that guy, his name is Igal Adruel. His brand is, till this day, is out there. Um, knew how to do that. You know, he knew how to create products that are creative, but women loved his product. That was an amazing experience. And from there, you know, I kind of moved into the next company and the next company. In the back of my mind, I kind of always wanted to have my own brand. So, um, fast forward seven or eight years later, I had my own brand. You would think it was my dream, my dream come through. I'm in New York. I have my fashion brand, everything that I ever wanted. Um, but funny enough, I realized when I had that brand is that what I needed to do on a day to day wasn't really what I enjoyed doing. You know, um, when you have your own brand, yes, there's the creative part of creating product, but again, if, that, if that's a business, it needs to sell product. And as the business owner or the designer or the name behind the brand, big part of what you need to do is you need to be out, out there all the time. You have to promote your product. You have to sell your product. You have to be there and, and push you know, the brand and create these opportunities to develop a business. It's not necessarily what I liked. I liked more the hands-on. I liked patterns. I liked samples. I liked working with product. I liked the back end much more. So, you know, four years later, I, you know, realized, by the way, after I made so many mistakes, tons of mistakes, some of which I, you know, got me to give the advice that I'm giving here because it cost me so much money with that brand at the beginning. I did many of these mistakes, but fast forward, I figured out what I need to do. I just didn't like what it was getting up every morning to do that. So I, I closed the line in 2008. And as I was looking around to see what I want to do, um, 
one of the things that I've, I've, I've realized is that I used to go to factories in New York. And I'll go into a factory, come out of the factory, in the elevator, there would be a designer, a young designer. And he or she could be annoyed, upset, sometimes furious with the factory. They didn't do what they wanted her to, what he or she uh, asked them to do. They didn't get along with the factory owner. Timing wasn't right. All of these things. Um, and I came out from the same factory thinking to myself, this is an amazing factory. <laughs> they do everything I ever asked them to do. The quality is amazing. I'd recommend them all day long. So when I saw this happen over and over again, it's when it clicked to me that there was a gap. There was a gap between designers, especially young designers, especially designers who are new to the industry and don't necessarily yet understand what it's like to work with factories, how the side of the manufacturing actually operates and how they think. And then there's the factories who actually don't understand what the designer goes through because they don't really understand what it's like to be a designer who has to promote the brand, create products, deal with the factories, source, source fabrics and materials, coordinate all of that. Everything is on their shoulders. So there's these two parties that have to work together in order for the brand to have product to sell, but they keep like, you know, um, fighting and conflicting between them. And I saw an opportunity there to kind of go in and close that gap. I know a situation, a company that will, that understands the designer point of view and understand the manufacturing point of view and can come in, talk to the designer the way they understand, explain to them what they need and how it needs to happen. And then take that and talk to the manufacturing in the language that they understand. So, you know, that created that situation where a designer can now focus on the things that only they can do in their business. They don't have to sit in the factory. They don't need to, because the other part is when you have these uh, conflicts with any one of your partners, it doesn't stay there. You know, it stays here. And then you have to go and sell your product and you're frustrated with what's happening on the factories. It impacts everything, you know? So that's the cap that human uh, B, my company, came in to close. That's what we've been doing for the last 12 years. Um, but as we worked in helping designers create product, that's really when I realized a lot of the things that we talked about today, the business side. You know, I saw a lot of designers who are very talented, very creative, have great ideas, but they don't necessarily understand how to run a business. They don't really, you know, they think creatively. It's hard for them to understand financial uh, responsibilities, creating a budget, working within some, you know, um, limitations when it comes to that. And really things that you need to do in order to build a business and have it be profitable. So we started to add more consulting and more programs that helps them to get that place, that, that part in place before they go into the development. And, you know, I say, even if they eventually 
going to have people that they're going to hire or gonna, are going to run all these other parts of the business. I think it's important for a designer, if you're the owner, to kind of have a view and understand what goes on in every part and aspect of your business. So you can then think about it from that perspective. When you hire people, you'll know what you expect from them. You'll know how to gauge if they do their work or not, how to connect all these pieces. So that's sort of like the additional part that we bring into the picture. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm going to use again your words. It's how you merge the artist and the entrepreneur and create a business that can be profitable and 100%. One thing that I have experienced and I hear it from your journey and it sticks out is starting my business in college forced me to grow. Like <laughs> you, you learn so much more about yourself, about your fears, your dreams, your purpose. You learn about hard work, consistency, discipline, self-awareness, and hearing your journey i hear so much of that stick out so kind of talk to me about what starting a business has done for you mentally and how you've mentally gotten through this whole battle because that's the biggest that's the biggest roadblock that people have to go through and a lot of people think about the exterior thing but the interior thing is the most important foundation to set Oh, Max, I, I'll tell you this, you just, you know, you nailed it with that. Because the mental part, all the things that we talked about, the logistics and thinking about your business are needed, a part of it, absolutely. But there is that component when you own your own business and it's all here on your shoulders. You're the one who needs to make decisions. You're the one who's going to have to get up when, you know, you get hit with surprises and things you're the one who needs to motivate you're the one who needs to make these connections between all the parties that are involved and it's not easy it's not easy sometimes when things don't work the way you wanted them or don't work the way you hope for them to work and the one thing i can assure you is and you know you probably will agree with me at this point is that as an entrepreneur as a business owner there's always going to be challenges that's that's a sure thing you know Many of them that you can't really uh, predict. You're going to get up one day in the morning and something happened. You know, something's many times it's not in your... Think about what happened in COVID to so many business owners. They woke up one day and the business went completely, you know, down. These things happen constantly. And one of the things that I will say that I personally invested... And you know, I like to, to listen and learn from a lot of successful people. And if you read books or listen to podcasts or interviews of successful people, you realize how much they invest in their mental fitness. It's, 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 it has to be there. Okay. Um, unfortunately, especially when I grew up, that was never something that was spoke about. No one even was aware that that's something that need to be invested in. You know, I have young kids now. That's one of the things that I try to drill into them to like develop these habits on a regular basis to kind of strengthen their mental fitness. Um, but to your point, for the last 
probably I would say since I closed my my brand, um, it's definitely something that I invested a lot in. And it comes in the forms of understanding, first of all, who you are, what you're good at, what you offer, you know, your self-value. You know, because when you stand in front of a buyer and you present your line that you worked so hard on, and that buyer might not be as, you know, their business. It's not personal. They'll reject your line. It's very hard to not take it personally. Yeah. It's very hard to stand there and say, you know what? I understand you don't like it. Can you give me feedback that I can use? Because the, the, the first thing, and we're humans, the first thing that we take is like, holy shit, this guy just told me my line sucks. How am I going to stand here? How am I going to go to the looks appointment? You know, how am I going to get up the next morning? All I want to do is I want to go to bed, cover myself, and stay there. That's where the mental fitness comes in. Um, and there's going to be many situations like that in your business. So for me, I invested a lot in this. Reading books, listening to people, taking courses, um, implementing. And you know, when I work one-on-one with, with designers, it's one of the things that I, I try to install in their daily habits. Things that they can do regularly on a daily basis that will help them keep a certain level of mental fitness. So when they get hit, it will feel bad you might not feel good for a day or two but you'll have enough strength here to get up the next morning or two days later and go at it again with the same passion and the same you know strength and it starts with meditations it starts with gratitude it starts with reminding yourself of the things that are we tend to really forget sometimes you know, things that are very simple to us in life that we forget. But when you start to remembering them or value them, it makes you understand, you know, okay, at the end of the day, I presented it to a buyer. He or she didn't like it. Maybe they weren't the right buyer or, or store for me. Maybe, you know, maybe I need to do some things differently. Maybe it was a good thing. Let me take what I learned from here, adjust go back to the next one and make the next one uh, work. And that's what it's all about. I love everything that you just said. And I want to give you a couple of tactical things that maybe even you can think about as well. Training men, training your mind is so, so important. And you talked about mental fitness and it's because to all the other entrepreneurs out there, you're dealing with the easiest problems that you're going to have to deal with today. It's only going to get harder. The more you level up, the game only gets harder. So don't think like, oh my God, this is all hitting me at once. I mean, this is the worst it's ever going to get because I promise you, it's not going to get any easier as you can. And thoughts are important and everyone talks about mindset, but I want to tell you about the four interior empires. And these are four things that you can tactically work on that are going to empower the whole part of your being. Obviously, one is the first thing is mindset, right? That's 25%. That's your thoughts. And you have to have good thoughts. You can't tell yourself bad things. You know what I mean? And it's it it carries and a lot of people work on that. But what I learned is the second thing, which is even more important possibly than mindset, is heart set. It's how you feel. And I never knew that to work on my business, I had to work on my heart. Like, that's something that, that was one of the, 
craziest realizations that I've had, but if you don't feel good on the inside, then you can't produce masterful work on the outside. If you don't feel good on the inside, then maybe the the work on the outside, you're not going to be able to elicit that feeling to other people and it's going to show in your work. And so kind of releasing those blockages that you have in your heart and working on that is going to make extreme differences in what you're able to do and build and keep going when the times get down. Next is health set. You know, you got to be physically healthy and mentally healthy. And I think that working on your physical health helps the meant helps the mind. You know, I mean, like when you go to the gym, that's training your mind more than it's training your body. And so the last thing and the, the thing that you kept saying is soul set. And that's remembering who you truly are. And so I read this in the 5 a.m. club by Robin Sharma. I highly recommend that book. If you haven't read it yet, I'll send it to you after this. And please. he talks about a morning routine. And so every single morning, I wake up at the same time every day, right? It doesn't matter. Like, I wake up early. I wake up at 6. But you can wake up at any time and do this routine. But it keeps the consistency in my day. First thing I do is go to the gym. That works on my physical health, but it more importantly works on my mental health. I have to be confident. When you go up to that buyer and you show your collection, you have to build confidence. Consistency and the gym helps you build that. Next is, is journaling and meditating. Like you said, that's that's feeling your emotions, feeling remembering who you truly are. That's working on, you know, clearing out some of those blockages that you hold within you. You know what I mean? And so, and the last thing is, is reading. And so reading helps you learn from other people. Like you said, other successful people that are going through what you want to go through it. When you listen to someone talk, you don't internalize what they're saying the way when you read what they have to say, you're telling yourself that affirmation, you're telling yourself those positive words, and that makes all of the difference. And so you can train those four interior empires each and every day in a morning routine so that by the time you're done that morning routine, you're ready to take on the world because you worked on yourself before you worked on anything or anyone else. And I think that that is, has made the difference in my confidence, my consistency, my discipline. And it's made me feel good on the inside so that I could run my business. And so I hope that that helped you at, in any type of way, because that's what's been able to carry me through all of the failures, all of the hard problems. I felt so many times, but I can keep going and keep pushing because I'm working on myself each and every day. And so that's the only thing that can keep me there and, and keep me pushing as an entrepreneur. Max, I can tell you this. Um, absolutely. So, you know, to your point, I have the same thing. I built that over the years as well. I have a morning routine of certain things that I do that include pretty much all the things that you mentioned. Um, mm. And I cannot tell you how many times I got up in the morning with thoughts in my head that are dark thoughts, you know, you're, you're like, oh shit, I don't want to start this day. It's like, I need to deal with this and that. And what if this and this, and then I know that all I need to do is I need to start this routine, you know, and as, as you start to do these things, all of a sudden, something starts to click differently. You know, you did a little bit of that, a little bit of this. No, I, 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 I start with a, the first thing that I do actually is a cold shower. And it's 
that on its own, all of a sudden, like you focus on like, oh my God, this is freezing. I just want to, you know, but it gives you a first win. First thing in the morning, you did something and you made it. All your perspective, all of a sudden, like, oh my God, now I'm for whatever time, a minute or two, I thought about that instead of thinking about my, um, the things that I woke up with. All of these little things and then meditation and journaling, very important. You know, someone once told me that um, writing, handwriting the stuff, we internalize a lot more when we do it this way. Because we can have thoughts and, and, you know, but sometimes they just disappear. But when you write them, they stick with us more. So yeah, to your point, journaling, meditation, whatever every one of you want to choose. It doesn't have to be three hours in the morning. It could be something a group of things. Obviously, workout is another thing that just helps clear the mind. But to your point, yes, these are the things that keeps you from getting dragged into the places that are not going to make you show up the way you need to show up all morning. You know, and it's easy. It's easy. We all have that voice here that's sitting and telling us, you know, don't do this. Be afraid of this, you know, whatever that voice. And it's different. That voice is different for every one of us, but it's there. I can tell you this. I'm a little older, so I can tell you this. This voice is not going anywhere. It's, it's there. There's no way to get rid of this voice, but there's a way to make that voice not as loud and kind of push it down and stand out to it, stand up to it. And that's a constant work. It's a daily work. And when you do that, you find strength, you start to get wins, and then your confidence starts to build, your self-value starts to get, all of these things. You know, all of these things become crucial when you own your own business. And I think, you know, many times when I talk to designers or even people who start their own business, the idea of like, oh, I'm going to have my own business and then I'm, I can have the freedom of do whatever I want to do, when I want to do. That doesn't go away. I want to jump off your point with the voice in your head because I posted something. I, I, I'm a content creator, so I posted something about the voice in your head. And I literally, my post was, stop listening to the voice in your head. The voice in your head simply wants to hear itself speak. And a lot of the advice that it has to say is horrible advice. Your job is to duct tape that voice and throw it hold tight and throw it in the back of the trunk and listen to your heart because your heart is like a metal detector for where you need to be when you creep up in the positions of discomfort your heart starts to race you feel the fear it it erodes throughout the rest of your body and it even goes into your palm and it even goes into your voice and when that spreads that means that you are exactly where you need to be don't let the voice in your head tell you that that's an uncomfortable position. Because, yeah, I mean, it is an uncomfortable position, but your heart is telling you that you need to be there because if your heart isn't activated and if it's not sensing that metal detection, that means you probably shouldn't be there. It means it's easy. It means it means it's it's light. And so stop listening to your mind. And, and, and first of all, hold on. Before I say stop listening to your mind, you are not your thoughts. You are the That's... person that witnesses those thoughts. You are not the voice in your head. You are the person that is watching what that voice has to say. And so 
when you separate yourself from that, you become present and you realize, just start listening to what that voice has to say. Before you t- turn on that cold shower and before you do the hopping and puffing, because trust me, I, I know what that's like. Your voice in your head is going to say, this sounds horrible. <laughs> I do not want this. When you jump into the shower, immediately your body goes into shock. But the perfect thing about it is, and the reason why I know this works for you, is because after that 30 seconds, it might not even be as long as 30 seconds, you feel fine. And it's that delay, it's that physical discomfort and the delayed gratification that makes the cold shower so incredible. So, just my message to younger designers, stop listening to the voice in your head. It is bad, bad advice. Listen to your inner advocate. Listen to your heart and read with your heart first. And in order to do that, you have to have an open heart, which is something that, you know, you'll you'll figure out. But I I just, I love that you brought that up. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, you know, I'll, I'll just add a couple of things. And honestly, I can talk about it for hours and hours. <laughs> I know how important it is. I'm, I'm in, I invested a lot of it, but I will, you know, I'll just, I'll say this to a lot of you who are listening to this. Keep in mind a couple of things. Your previous experiences, no matter how bad they are or how much you think you didn't do well, are not the ones who are going to define you. They're just experiences. They're not who you are. If you learn from them, you'll do better next time. That's one thing. The other part is, and that I know for sure, even when things seem like the whole world is now collapsing. You know, there's no way of getting out of this. After every bad situation like that, eventually there's going to be a good situations and things will pick up. That's just how it's going to be. You just got to keep your faith. You got to keep doing the things that we were both talking about here. And you will notice that like all of a sudden the winter of change, the sun is out and life looks good again. So you know, I hope I hope that all of you are going to take a lot of these things in. I can tell you this. I hope that when I started my career, I, I was, you know, I wish I should say somebody would have given me all these tips because they would be really, really full. I want to go into a speed round to end this off and ask you a, a few just quick questions. You know, it's funny before I say that a lot of people say, Max, well, why, why is your content all about fear? consistency and i'm like yo i i can talk to you about business but there's no point <laughs> there's no point because should be told this is the this is what you have to get over it or it's like, i i don't even feel like talking about business because a lot of the reason why you're not doing what you want to do is because of identity the labels right. that you give yourself i had i sat there and i just did a 50-day challenge and I finished it and it was one of the craziest I did. It was sobriety, no alcohol. Um, it was consistency in the morning. It involved assignments and learning. And what I did before the challenge was I took all of the labels that I identified with and I made a T chart and I said, this is what I don't want to be. And this is what I do want to be. And I took those labels on the other side and I said, I'm going to embody 
these traits. I'm going to be the person that I want to be. And when you change your identity, you change your habits. And when you change your habits, you change your world. And it was, I mean, this 50-day challenge, I finished it on March 1st. It was one of the most life-changing experiences I've ever had. And it's because I started being the person that I wanted to be. And when you do that from an identity perspective, everything else falls in line. And so I want anyone that's listening this to know as well, the labels that you tell yourself are so important. And you actually can change those labels. As much as you don't think that you may be able to change those labels, those are fluid. You are not confined to your past. And so when you change those labels, everything else falls in line. I just wanted to say that before I ask you this, this speed around a question. Well, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, I don't, I'm, there's nothing else that I can add. It's really, it isn't congratulations from doing this, you know, really it, it's, and I, I know exactly what it would, what I felt like to do that and to your point. Yes. I think the, the really at the end of the day, the most important thing is for people to understand that it is in your control, you know, you weren't born with these fears. You know, it's not that these fears are not you. There are things that you, you know, there's really an explanation. We're not going to get into it now as to why we have these fears, but they're not you. You can overcome them. There's enough tools there, enough things that you can do to get you above this and go and do and be whoever you want it to be. 100%. So my first question is, what is failure to you? So I will say, if you would ask me this, you know, when I start my career, it will be a complete different answer, you know, because I judged it differently. I looked at failure and said, oh, I want to be here, but I'm not there. I'm a failure. I now have the wisdom and a lot of the things that we spoke the last, you know, 15 or 20 minutes made me realize this. Failure has a super value to it. Failure is just, the bottom line is, it's something you tried and it didn't work out the way you thought it's going to work. Okay. What do you do with it? You look at it and you think, okay, what can I do different next time? That's it. It's a lesson. That's all it is. It's hard because the word failure, you know, brings so many labels to it. At the end of the day, it's a great lesson. And I bet you, any one of you, when you look at your life, there are, there were, there are situations when you felt like these were failures. But somehow, somewhere down the road, these were the biggest lessons that you learned and they got you to have the next win that you want. I know it happens many times in my life, so it's a lesson. I love that. And I, I couldn't agree more. I've failed multiple times starting this business that we're running right now. But if I never did that, I would never have the business that I have right now. So I couldn't agree more. What is success? Honestly, being happy. Just getting up in the morning and knowing that here it's, you like what you do. You feel good about what you do. You have the, you know, your cup is full. Meaning when you talk to people, you don't feel like, oh, I don't want to share or I don't want to be, I don't, I don't want to show, uh, empathy. When you, when you show up in the morning and you're able to show empathy towards other people. And you're able to listen to other people. It's not just about you. It's about 
having that smile in the morning and knowing that, you know what, I'm going to get up this morning and I'm going to do something that's going to make me happy. Hopefully will make other people happy. At the end of the day, when you think about all the moments that are making us happy, it's the little things that makes us happy. You know, for me to get up in the morning and seeing my family and knowing that, you know, I look forward to come back and, and seeing them, see kids that are smiling and have no worries in their life. It puts things in perspective and make you realize, you know what? That's really what it is. It's they're successful because they're happy. They're 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 they're, they're not thinking about too many things, and they're able to give. So you know, when you're successful in that space and when you're happy inside and here, it's you really feel good about where you are. Um, you're able to give others. You're able to show. You're able to 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 teach. You're able to show empathy, sympathy. That's when you know. That's. I think the bottom line is that we all can be easily successful. Just have to think that way. Hundred percent. I I couldn't agree more. And just to add on to your point, I originally judged my success on service and helping people. And I realized that that was an exterior thing. And it wasn't until I realized that success comes from here, not from anything that you can do on the outside, that I actually started to feel that same fulfillment. So I, I think that that was an important point. My next question is, what is, you talked about having kids. And then we had to say that, what is one thing that you would tell the younger version of yourself? But like, what is the one message out of no other that you want your kids to learn and understand by like speak to speak to your kids right now. What is the one message that you think trumps everything else? Go and fail. Go and fail. Dude, just go out there and do what you have in mind. Okay, it won't work out. It won't work out the first time. It might not work for 10 times. But if you're gonna learn from it. And you're going to have that uh, trust and faith in yourself and in the world, obviously. Um, things will work out. And you'll find your place in life. And you'll find the things that you love. And you'll find the people that you want to be around. You know, um, I would admit, you know, for me, when I was younger, it's something that I didn't get from, you know, uh, the, the environment that I grew up in. Failure always look. That's why I said, if you'd asked me that question 30 years ago, my question would be, my answer would be different because I looked at it differently. I looked at it as where I am externally. That's going to define how happy I am, where I am in life, if I can be what I want to be, if I can show up, all of these things. But uh, I wish somebody there would have just, maybe they did and I didn't hear. That could be as well. Uh, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't attention to it but um, I feel like if I would give advice to my younger self back then is go out there and, and, and fail and take chances don't be afraid of that you know the fear is, is an emotion that is an emotion it's there it's, it shouldn't define what you're going to be and it shouldn't define what actions you should take and actually fear is a good thing you know sometimes it motivates us if we know how to use it right it makes us, you know, be maybe a little bit more cautious and then pay attention. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but yeah, definitely go out there and, and give it all your best. Well, it's all good. Fear is power. It's power that can work for you or against you. And so 
you got to decide if it's going to be an inhibitor or a deterrent. And I just wanted to lead that into my next and last question. This podcast is called The Game of Power. And so I wanted to know what that meant to you, how you process those words and kind of what your opinion on that name is. Oh, I, I you know, like I said, uh, the, the last, what, 12 years, I invested so much in my mental fitness. So any of these things will come back to my internal power. So for me, the game of power starts here. Start with yourself. Honestly, everything that we just talked about, the tools, the beliefs, the thoughts, the work that we do on a regular basis, um, that's that game. If you do that, you'll feel powerful. And when you feel powerful, whatever you put out there, whatever you'll do, will be the right thing. Whether it's going to work or not, whether it's going to be what you thought it's going to be, it doesn't matter. And, and you you realize this. You realize this, that it's this power, your power comes from inside and from the things that you are going to um, install in your mind and the way that you do things and how you show up and how you treat, how you treat other people. And everything will fall into place when you do that. So, you know, that, that to me is the gamer power. I, lo I love the name, by the way. I love this very much. And I think it, it's it's great. It's inspiring. That's exact. That's exactly what this is, and that's exactly what this is for, man. You embody the game of power, and I'm so happy and thankful for you to be on this show today. Thank you so much, so much. I think everyone has a lot to learn from this conversation. So, um, where can people find you? Do you want to kind of just shout out some of your contact information before we head out? Sure. Um, so. Our website is the easiest way to find not just me, but find information. We have a lot of free resources there, free ebooks. Some that I mentioned. Uh, there's an ebook there that you can download on how to uh, find, vet, and work with factories. I know it's a challenge for a lot of designers. There's an ebook there about sustainability and what it means and defining what it is for you. There's a free ebook there that I spoke about. The I call it the triangle method. There's those three things that I think every business should think about. Um, but generally, if you want to find out what we do, how we do things, and tons of, if you go to the blog part of it, there's videos and, and, and blog posts that talks a lot about it. the business side, the mental stuff, the development and production. I think it's super valuable. Um, the website is www.human, the word human, and the letter B, dot com. Very easy to find. that in the description. Yes. And um, yeah, if you want, anybody wants to follow me on LinkedIn, I put a lot of uh, content there as well. You can find me, Boaz David, in LinkedIn. Easy to find. I hope. First of all, thank you very much for having me here. This was a fun, fun, fun call for me because... I get really passionate about these things. You know, I, I, I love talking about these things. And I really hope that anybody who's listening to this will take one or two things at least that will help them in their business, help them in their life. We did this, you know, make us happy. That's our power. But thank you so much. I really appreciate your sound. Thank you everyone for tuning into the Game of Power.